Good morning. Our reading comes today from John 16, and I'll be reading verses 5 through 15. But now I am going to him who sent me, and none of you ask me, where are you going? But because I have said these things to you, sorrow has filled your heart. But I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. And concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world has been judged. I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when he, the spirit of truth, comes, he will guide you into all the truth. For he will not speak on his own initiative, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will disclose to you what is to come. He shall glorify me, for he shall take of mine and shall disclose it to you. All things the Father has are mine. Therefore I said that he takes of mine and will disclose it to you. Father, thank you for these great words of encouragement. I pray that the spirit that you sent will enlighten our hearts and minds to see Jesus better. In Christ's name. Just about uh, 23 years ago, I got to actually observe the pain of childbirth without even so much as an aspirin to relieve the intensity. And let me tell you, I decided that day that next time I was going to take that aspirin. (laughs) Carol Burnett Burnett once said, and most of you have heard this joke, but she said, if you want to know what childbirth feels like, just grab your bottom lip and pull it up over the top of your head. When a woman is in the most intense pangs of childbirth, she feels as if she cannot bear what she's experiencing. But one of the most dramatic transformations that a husband will ever get to behold in this life is the change that takes place from the anguishing moments as that baby is coming into the world to the the moment right after that when that baby is placed in its mother's arms, the change in the experience and the display, the demeanor of that mother is like going from from night to day. If I hadn't seen it with my own eyes, I would never have believed that such a transformation would be possible in such a short period of time. Now, Jesus uses that same dramatic contrast here in chapter 16, to vividly illustrate what was just about to take place in the hearts of these 11 men to whom he was speaking on this final evening before his death. The heart of chapter 16 is a marvelous parting promise from Jesus to his beloved disciples. The promise that their terrible sorrow would be turned to very great joy. In verse 20, he said, Truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will be turned 
to joy. The contrast in that verse between how the world would respond to Christ's crucifixion and how the disciples would respond to his crucifixion is is like the difference between pitch black darkness and astonishing light. I should say light and darkness. The disciples would weep and lament, Jesus said, when they saw their master arrested and mocked and beaten and nailed to a cross to die a disgraceful and violent death. But in the midst of their terrible sorrow, the world would rejoice. The world would rejoice. In the previous chapter, Jesus had told these men that the world would hate them and persecute them because it had hated and persecuted Him. But it must have been unthinkable to these men who were so beloved by Jesus that anyone could rejoice at His suffering and excruciating death. Jesus provided them an illustration to drive home the promise He was making to them. He said, whenever a woman is in travail, she has sorrow because her hour has come. But when she gives birth to the child, she remembers the anguish no more for joy that a child has been born into the world. By mid-afternoon, the day after Jesus spoke these words, these 11 men certainly could not imagine that their sorrow would be turned to joy. But Jesus would keep His promise to them. In verse 22, He said to them, Therefore you too now have sorrow, but I will see you again. And your heart will rejoice, and no one takes your joy away from you. He knew that when these men saw Him resurrected and standing in their midst, just a few days later, that their terrible sorrow would be transformed into unspeakable joy. And it wouldn't be a fleeting or momentary joy. He said, no one takes your joy away from you. It would be an enduring, unassailable joy. Beloved, that's what this chapter is about. This morning and next Sunday, we're going to consider three marvelous gifts that turn our sorrow into joy. And these are gifts that Jesus had to leave this earth to give us. These three gifts turn the disciples' sorrow into enduring joy, and the same three gifts will turn our sorrow into enduring joy as we learn to lay hold of them day by day. Here are the gifts. Because Jesus returned to His Father, we are powerfully equipped by the Spirit. We are always beholding the Son. And we are wonderfully loved by the Father. I hope that you notice that all three persons of the Trinity are represented in those three gifts. We are powerfully equipped by the Spirit. We are always beholding the Son and we are wonderfully loved by the Father. This morning we'll consider only the first of those three gifts. And then we'll look at the other two next Sunday. And we'll also look at one final point that Jesus makes to His disciples at the end of chapter 16. And that is that none of this depends on us. The overcomer here is not us. The overcomer is Jesus Christ. 
The first of the three gifts is that we are powerfully equipped by the Spirit. My, my title for this morning's message is The Holy Spirit, the Believer's Great Advantage. In chapter 14, which occurred earlier in this very same final address on the same night, Jesus told his disciples that because he was about to go to his Father, they were going to do greater works than he had done. And then a few verses later, he told them, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. Not, uh, excuse me, that is the spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive because it does not behold him or know him. But you know him because he abides with you and will be in you. This promise of greater works was all about the promise of the indwelling Holy Spirit. It's not the disciples' works, it's the Spirit's works. Many have rightly called the book of Acts the Acts of the Holy Spirit rather than the Acts of the Apostles. We saw in chapter 14 that the word helper or paraclete means one called alongside as advocate and enabler. One called alongside as advocate and enabler. Three times in this discourse, Jesus refers to the Spirit as the helper and as the Spirit of truth. The Spirit of truth. Here in John 16, Jesus gives us a much, He gave His disciples and us a much fuller understanding of how it is that the Spirit advocates on our behalf and how He enables us to, to act in this, this world as agents of Jesus Christ. In John 16, verse 7, Jesus said to His disciples, I tell you, it is to your advantage that I go away. It's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper shall not come to you. But if I go, I will send Him to you. And then he proceeds to explain to them how it is that it's advantageous for them if he departs and sends the Spirit. The first piece of this great advantage is in verses 8 through 11. In verse 8, Jesus says, and when he, and he, when he comes, that's very emphatic. He's saying, I'm talking about the Spirit here. He, when he comes, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Now I pray that we won't walk away from here this morning without being greatly impacted by what that promise means. If you want to be a bold witness for Jesus Christ in this world, you need to carry that promise with you every day of your life. The Spirit convicts the world of sin and righteousness and judgment. At the end of chapter 15, right after telling the disciples in no uncertain terms that they would be hated and persecuted by the world, this godless world, because of Jesus, he said to them, when the Helper comes whom I will send to you from the Father, that is the Spirit of Truth, there's those two titles together again, the Helper, the Spirit of Truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness of me. And you will bear witness also because you have been with me from the beginning. He will bear witness and you will bear witness. And those are not two separate witnesses. It's not 
the Spirit doing His thing and us doing our thing. It's one witness. Now you and I don't have too much trouble understanding that we are never alone in our proclamation of Jesus Christ. The Spirit works in us and through us to make our witness useful. But here's the part we may be reluctant to understand or acknowledge. The Holy Spirit is also never alone in His witness for Jesus. And I'm not talking here about the fact that the Father and the Son are always working together with the Spirit. The Holy Spirit's witness in this world is through men and women. The Spirit of truth works through us, alongside us, and in us to make Jesus Christ known to this world. Now, if you think that that's putting the Holy Spirit in a box, that that's more confining than what the Bible says about the work of the Spirit in evangelism, stick with me for a minute. How does the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, bear witness to the Son? He does so through the Word and through us. And by the way, those are not two separate witnesses either. Because what is it that you and I proclaim to this world? The Word that we have received from the Spirit. Listen to Paul's words in Romans 10. He says, How then shall they call upon Him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in Him whom they have not heard? And how shall they hear without a preacher? How shall they hear without a preacher? That doesn't mean that God can't make Himself known without a preacher. It means that that's how God has intended to do it. That's how He's chosen to do it. And He says, And how shall they preach unless they are sent? Just as it is written, How beautiful are the feet of those who bring glad tidings of good things. Brothers and sisters, we will never understand the work of the Holy Spirit in evangelism until we reckon with the fact that God saves lost men through the agency of redeemed men. God saves lost men through the agency of redeemed men. And when I say through the agency of, I simply mean that God uses us, His children, as His instruments to reveal Jesus to lost people. And by the way, that applies even to the work of the Spirit through the written Word, doesn't it? I know people who have gotten, who've been brought out of the darkness into the light with no other human intervention except that they picked up a Bible and they read it. They read something in it and God saved them. But let me ask a couple of questions. Through whom did the Spirit write the words that we find in the Bible? Angels? No. Through whom did the Spirit preserve those words? Through whom did the Spirit work to bring about multitudes of translations of those words? Through whom has this word been distributed to millions of people and proclaimed to millions of people? Through God's image bearers and agents. The prophets, the apostles, and us. That's still how God does this. By the way, man's assignment from the very beginning, you can go to page one of your Bible, man's assignment from the very beginning was to act as God's agent. 
to do God's work, God's way, in God's creation, right? That hasn't changed. That's called agency. It's still man's assignment. God does not and never has needed the involvement of human beings to accomplish whatever He wants to accomplish. But that's how God has chosen to act in His creation, to whom He gave dominion over this earth. See, Genesis 1 hasn't changed. It was corrupted, but God's been redeeming it ever since. Ever since. So Paul asks, how shall they hear without a preacher? The Holy Spirit works through us to carry on the work of Jesus Christ, to seek and save that which was lost. Jesus is still here, brothers and sisters. He's still here. And He's still seeking and saving the lost. And He's doing it through us. As He does so, as the Spirit works through us to carry on the work of Christ, there are three grievous errors perpetrated by the world that He, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, exposes through His Word and through our proclamation and adornment of His Word. I use the word exposes because that's what Jesus means here when He says the Spirit convicts the world. The word convict does not mean brings to repentance. That happens sometimes. But all the time, when the Spirit convicts, He exposes, or to use the modern terminology, He smokes out the lies that men perpetrate about sin and righteousness and judgment. It's like what an attorney does in a court of law when he cross-examines the witness for the other side in hopes of exposing inconsistencies and falsehoods in his testimony. The Holy Spirit exposes, He brings out onto the table every unbeliever's grievous error concerning three things. Sin and righteousness and judgment. Have you ever thought about how interwoven those three things are? (laughs) I've thought about that a lot the last couple of weeks. See, to buy into a lie about the first one, you have to buy into a lie about the other two. To convince yourself that you're not bad enough, you're not sinful enough to deserve God's condemning judgment, you have to make your sin less sinful than God says it is. And you also have to make God's righteousness less righteous than God says it is. And you also have to make God's judgment less demanding than God says it is. As I pondered this passage, I realized that before I got saved, I had bought into all three of those modifications of these attributes, these, these things that, that have to do with God's relationship to mankind. I didn't even realize I was buying a lie until I really, until God pulled the blinders off and I heard the truth. To buy into the lie about righteousness, you have to convince yourself that your righteousness is sufficient to outweigh your sin and to commend you as good enough in the eyes of God. And to do that, (laughs) you have to lie about sin and you have to lie about judgment. And to buy the lie about judgment, to maintain that God is too kind to execute a condemning judgment against you, likewise requires that you deny what God has clearly said about sin and righteousness. The three are, are just completely bound together. By the way, this is important, for you as a child of God, if 
in order for you and me to speak the truth to lost people about any one of those three, we have to speak the truth about the other two. And that is very helpful when you're trying to figure out what's the message I need to convey. If what you call sharing the the gospel omits what God himself declares about any of those three things, sin, righteousness, judgment, your gospel needs an adjustment. As I thought about this in relation to how the Holy Spirit brought me out of the darkness and into the light roughly 44 years ago, I realized that, that the Spirit revealed the truth about all three of those things to me through the faithful and rigorously biblical witness of a, of a high school biology teacher named Mike Turnage. Now, I've shared my testimony with you before, so I won't go into all the details, but I want to just tie that experience to, to this. Early in the conversation, the night that I came out of the darkness, the Spirit pulled me out of the darkness, Mike asked me the most important question anyone has ever asked me. In effect, he asked me, Tom, if, if you died and you stood before a perfectly holy, perfectly righteous God, and he asked you, what right do you have to enter into my kingdom, what would your answer be? And as I sheepishly gave him my answer, I, I knew it had to be wrong if the question was right. See, he was telling me the truth about righteousness. And my answer was, I couldn't come up with another one at the time, I said, I guess I'd tell God that I had done the best I could and I hope it was good enough. Of course, Mike pointed out that that answer wouldn't cut it with God. And then he proved that by lovingly showing me what God had to say about the matter. And through words long ago breathed out by the Holy Spirit, that Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, speaking through this humble man, set before me the truth about sin and righteousness and judgment. Mike showed me in Romans 3 that there is none righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is none who seeks after God. All have turned aside. Together they have become useless. There is none who does good. There is not even one. You talk about whiplash. I was an altar boy at the time. I thought I was good. And God said, there's nobody, nobody who passes muster with me except one. And then Mike showed me in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. What I had earned by my sin is death. And he explained from Scripture that that, that judgment of death is not just death of the body. It is the eternal death of the soul in separation from the presence of God and from the glory of His power. 2 Thessalonians 1. Forever. That's the truth about judgment. As Mike read those passages to me while he made me read along from the Bible in his hand, the Holy Spirit broke me down and remade me right on the spot. Within minutes, I knew without the slightest doubt that for the first time in my earthly existence, I had heard the truth about God and about me. I knew that the one and only way that I would ever stand in the presence of God was to trust in Jesus, the perfect Son of God, who died to satisfy 
God's righteous judgment against my desperate sin. My terrible violation of His holiness. And to clothe me, to clothe me in the only righteousness that has ever been acceptable to God. His own righteousness. See, it's all absolutes. The whole sin, righteousness, and judgment thing, they're all absolutes. There's no, there are no half measures here. And the only one who satisfies God's requirement is Jesus. So if your trust is not in Him, if your trust is in you, even a little bit, if your trust is in anything that you can do or in anyone else, you're condemned until you put your faith in Jesus Christ alone. There's no way to whitewash that. Since that day, I've gotten to walk many people down that same road that Mike walked me down. And some of them came to trust in Jesus just as I did. Most, as far as I've been able to tell, did not. But it wasn't Mike who brought me to faith in Jesus and it will never be I who brings anyone else to faith in Jesus. We're just instruments of the One who is mighty to save. I want to look for just a few minutes at the three because statements in verses 9 through 11 because some people have trouble with these. In verse 9, Jesus told His disciples that the Spirit would convict the world concerning sin because they do not believe in Me, He said. I think that's pretty straightforward. There's only one provision for sinful men to be made righteous in the eyes of God, and that is by trusting in the person and saving work of Jesus. The Spirit exposes every other proposed solution to sin as a lie. So until a man puts his faith in Jesus alone, he remains in his sin. That's the truth about sin. In verse 10, Jesus says the Holy Spirit would convict the world concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer behold me. I think that's actually pretty straightforward too. Beloved, there is no more compelling proof of the magnitude of our own sin than to behold the perfection of God's own righteousness. And there is no purer display available to mankind of the perfection of God's own righteousness than Jesus, the sinless Son of God. Every man, woman, and child who got to listen to and watch and meet with Jesus during His earthly ministry, got to behold firsthand what God's own righteousness looks like in a man. Perfect man. But then He left. Then He left. When Jesus departed this earth to return to His Father's side, to His rightful glory, the one and only righteous man who ever walked this earth was no longer here for men to listen to and to behold. But the Holy Spirit has taken up that mantle and that task. It is He, the Spirit of truth, working through His Word and through His people who reveals to the world the only one who has ever actually shown us God's own righteousness in human form. As the Spirit reveals Jesus to men, He exposes all of the righteousness of man as filthy rags in the eyes of God. 
The third lie that the Spirit exposes in lost men and women is the world's lie concerning judgment. And Jesus said, because the ruler of this world has been judged. In chapter 8, Jesus identified Satan as a liar and the father of lies. But his point in that passage was to indict the Jews who were opposing Jesus. He told them, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. Whether, whether those who have rejected Jesus acknowledge it or not, they are of Satan's camp. They might be sort of passively in that camp, or they may be militantly in that camp, but they're still of the world, and the ruler of this world is Satan. And the problem with following a fallen angel is that angels don't get second chances. Satan was eternally condemned by God the moment he rebelled against God. He hasn't yet been cast into the flames of hell, but that destiny is already settled. The ruler of this world has already been judged. Satan loves nothing more than to convince lost people that the coming judgment of mankind by Jesus that's spoken of in both testaments of Scripture is fiction. He loves to say to us, nothing to worry about here, folks. Go on about your business of doing whatever you want to. If God was going to judge you, He would already have done it. Do you know that that exact lie can be found in Isaiah chapter 5 and in 2 Peter chapter 3? If God was going to judge you, He would have already done it. But the Spirit tells us that Satan, the one perpetrating that lie, has already been judged. It kind of messes with his credibility, don't you think? Satan says, you won't be judged. He's already judged. That's what Jesus says. All right, it is the Holy Spirit who convicts the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. And, and that means it's not us. It's not you and me. It's Him. And that's really, really important. Again, you and I are just instruments. We're redeemed instruments. We're beloved instruments. We are heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. But we're still just instruments. And we need to get the roles straight. It's actually amazingly liberating when we do, isn't it? Do you believe that the Spirit does these things through you now? Do you believe that when you speak of Jesus to lost people, He, the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of truth, is the one who is actually doing whatever exposing of hearts and persuading of minds is going on? And you're not. Do you believe that when you pass along to, to lost men and women God's own testimony concerning His Son, that the Holy Spirit who dwells in you is absolutely faithful to do through you something that you have absolutely no ability to do by yourself? To expose the world's lies concerning sin and righteousness and judgment and to persuade the hearts of God's elect to trust in Jesus as their only righteousness in the eyes of God. 
You can't do that. And that's really, really good. (laughs) Because it frees you up. That's not your assignment. See, think about how this impacts our witness for Christ. It, It should be amazingly liberating to us. We don't have to convince anyone. We don't have to make anyone believe. We don't even have to make anybody uncomfortable. We don't have to argue anyone into the kingdom. All we are appointed to do is to speak God's own revealed truth in love and leave all the saving to the Spirit. Can you do that? We can do that, guys. We can say true things that God has revealed about Jesus Christ and let God worry about what He's going to do with that. It's great. All right, I'm going to move quickly. The the first great advantage that we receive because Jesus returned to his Father is the the convicting work that the Holy Spirit does in lost men, women, and children through his word and through us as we speak his word. In verses 12 and 13, Jesus reveals the second thing that the Spirit of truth does that gives us a very great advantage as followers of Christ. He says, I have many more things to say to you, but you cannot bear them now. But when He, the Spirit of truth, comes, He will guide you into all the truth. All the truth. For He will not speak on His own initiative, but whatever He hears, He will speak, and He will disclose to you what is to come. Now, I believe those verses refer first and foremost to the Spirit's work of inspiration rather than to the Spirit's work of illumination. I believe that Jesus is talking here about things that had not up to that point been revealed to his disciples. And I think that becomes clear in the last part of of verse 13 when he says he will disclose to you what is to come. The Spirit of truth guided the prophets and apostles into all the truth. But it applies to us in this way. Because now, through the words that those men wrote, under the superintending work of the Spirit, that same Spirit guides us into all the truth. The second great advantage is that He hands us that which is true. The third great advantage that we receive because Jesus returned to His Father and sent the Spirit is that the Spirit glorifies Jesus by disclosing to us what belongs to Jesus. When Jesus was here on earth, much of what He said to the multitudes was veiled in parables and figures of speech. Often during His earthly ministry, Jesus took His disciples aside and He explained the point of a parable or a metaphor in more detail to them than than he had done to the multitudes. But there was still a cryptic, even incomplete nature to much of what Jesus had to say to the disciples while he was here. Just a little later in this same chapter of John, Jesus is going to tell them that an hour would soon come when, quote, I will speak to you no more in figurative language but I will tell you plainly of the Father. That plain disclosure 
of the person and ways of God would come to these men through the indwelling Holy Spirit. And that same Spirit now makes that same glorious disclosure to you and me through the words written by those men and by the prophets who came before them. I'm going to ask you to listen attentively to an amazing declaration by the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 2. This is a familiar passage to many of you. One brother on Wednesday morning pointed out that a lot of this is very familiar and sometimes we need to be challenged to sort of rethink, to really ponder this, these things. I'm going to ask you to listen to this passage as if you've never heard it before. And I want you to listen to it in light of Jesus' promise that we just heard that the Spirit would bring us into all truth and He would give to us the things that belong to Jesus. 1 Corinthians 2, starting at verse 4. And my message, Paul says, and my message and my preaching were not in persuasive words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. Yet, but we do speak wisdom among those who are mature. A wisdom, however, not of this age, nor of the rulers of this age who are passing away. But we speak God's wisdom in a mystery. The hidden wisdom, which God predestined before the ages to our glory. The wisdom which none of the rulers of this age has understood. For if they had understood it, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. Listen to this. But just as it is written, things which eye has not seen and ear has not heard and which have not entered the heart of man, all that God has prepared for those who love Him, We read that and we say, okay, well, so we don't get to know this stuff. Eye has not seen it. Ear has not heard it. It has not been revealed. But read the next verse. For to us, God revealed these things through the Holy Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, even the depths of God. For who among men knows the thoughts of a man except the spirit of the man which is in him? Even so, the thoughts of God no one knows except the Spirit of God. (laughs) Now we have received not the Spirit of the world, but the Spirit who is from God, that we we might know the things freely given to us by God. Things which we also speak, not in words taught by human wisdom, but in those taught by the Spirit, combining spiritual thoughts with spiritual words. For who has known the mind of the Lord that He should instruct Him? But we have the mind of Christ. Guys, that's, that's astonishing. We have the mind of Christ handed to us in person. We have the things that belong to the Son and that He says belong to the Father by the work of the Spirit. We don't worship an unknown God. We worship the God who has made Himself wonderfully and intimately known to us through the miraculous work of the Spirit who performs that work through His Word 
laying our hearts bare before God, exposing in us every lie and revealing truth after marvelous truth to us about our amazing God. The same apostle who wrote this gospel later wrote in his first letter to the churches, we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. We have come to know. When our great God and Savior Jesus Christ departed this earth to return to His Father, He did so in order that He might give us a miraculous advantage. That He might equip us to speak and to live as His redeemed agents in this world. And that very great advantage happens to also be God's down payment to us of all the rest of our eternal inheritance. That very great advantage is a person, just like the rest of our inheritances. Our advantage is God, the Holy Spirit, who has pitched His tent in us in order to pour out within us to overflowing all that belongs to Jesus. We are heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Christian, there is a a miraculous power at work within you and through you. And that power is a person. The third person of the Trinity, the Holy Spirit. He, He is our very great advantage. Every moment of every day, We have all that we need from God because the Spirit of truth abides with us and in us. Dear Father, thank You for sending us Your Spirit, our very great advantage until His work through us on earth is done. We praise You. We thank You. We stand in awe in the name of the One that He, the Spirit, came to glorify our perfect Savior and Master, our only righteousness, Jesus Christ. Amen.